It's a blessing to be blessed, Father Abraham could tell us. And the only cost is taking God at his inviolate word. Blessings and obedience go hand in hand. Abram, leave the land you know. Go to a place unimagined. And from the flower of your faith, I will allow blessings untold to unfold for you and all who follow. And it was so. Now, like Nicodemus, we are called to another place, one sweeter than the land of milk and honey, the kingdom of God itself. Jesus promises his presence for the journey and eternal life at the end, which is only the beginning. But first, we must trust him as savior and promise keeper. We must leave behind the world we know, wade into the river of spirit. Let it carry us to a place unimagined. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. No one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do you not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Trust is hard. Trust is probably the hardest thing to come by or face or go through. And I can testify that from personal experience. Um, I remember kind of a mind-blowing moment. I was uh, 24 years old. I was a youth pastor. I had just come back from, I had gotten out, finished college, gone to Africa, come back. So I was pretty, relatively young. And, uh, and I was still, believe it or not, I was still on the fence. When I was in college, you know, Dumb or not dumb, I 
genuinely believed I might actually be single for the rest of my life. I thought that was a, a path that God might have for me. And I was still on the fence about it by the time I had gotten to this point. And I had this uh, youth pastor, and we would just go for walks. And fellow youth pastor, who's my boss, and I would just go for walks with him and ask him questions. So there he was. I was asking, and I asked him. This was a really pointed question for me at the time, because, like I said, I was on the fence about how I was going to spend the rest of my life. I said, how do you trust someone enough to marry them? And I'll never forget his answer. I asked a few people this, and he's the only one that told me this. Um, he said, you just do. You trust them knowing that they will break your trust, that they will break your heart, and that you will have to rebuild it, and that you will break theirs. You step into trust because it's vulnerable, it's real, and it's hard. And so I was pretty scared after that. Uh, it took me five more years to actually end up getting married. So I um, had to overcome some, some fear there. But he was right. And I think trust has been the challenge of my life in all my relationships, um, all my friendships, even with family. And one article I read recently just kind of summarized one of the issues with trust and that trust is difficult to gain and give seeing as disappointment comes too easily and too often. If your past is marked by incidences of trust betrayal, you are marked by those incidences, which makes it even harder to instill your trust in the present. Psalm 20, verse 7 says, uh, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. And it's fascinating to me that Trust or faith is this mystical interaction that God uses to define his relationship to us when, on some level, it's probably the hardest thing for us to do. And a typical breakdown, of, if you ever go to seminary, a typical breakdown from the theology book of what faith is or what trust in God or trust in Christ is, you'll see a few categories. Um, Salvation, justification, repentance, regeneration, sanctification, glorification, lots of fancy words. Uh, and there's a lot of debate about all these things and how they actually happen. You know, are we, is there an order to them? Do they all happen at once? Uh, and how, most of all, I mean, the most important thing is how do we know whether we're actually doing them or not? Um, and my goal here is not to embark on a mechanical exploration of the specifics, but to increase our understanding and experience of these things in our lives. And especially the first three, when you look at, or, well, yeah, justification, repentance, and regeneration. And to see that all those things intertwine as we grow closer to God, and that God makes promises inviting us to rise and to see him fulfill them and to trust in him. And in the passages today that we've already read, um, we see this intertwining of grace, faith, and this new birth in Christ, that we are being called to receive God's promises and to rise into his fulfillment of them. Genesis 12, uh, you know, we studied it in depth a couple summers ago. Uh, Abraham was a pagan moon worshiper, and he had no prior affiliation with God, and God came to him 
and made these amazing promises that he would be a great nation, that he would always basically be blessed and that all his blessings would be exponential and that anyone that opposed him, God would oppose. And with all of that, those promises, God is still asking Abraham for a huge amount of trust. He's asking him to leave his father's house. He's asking him to leave his relationships and his heritage. Uh, it was a very much, uh, much more important even than now today that people be recognized through their bloodlines. You know, and when they do the genealogies in the Bible, it's always so-and-so, son of so-and-so. That's because that's who you were. That was, you know, your namesake came from your father. And being in your father's house meant you had a heritage to pass on to further generations. And so, while the promises that God makes might seem somewhat random to us, they are addressing Abraham's immediate need. His immediate need to know that if he leaves, what he will lose will actually, he will gain much more uh, by leaving. To leave one's home and household was to step away from a sacred right. And so God creates an eternal sacred right for Abraham to step into. And not only does he do all that, does he make all those promises, but God makes a clear expression of partnership. That he is not only extending himself to Abraham more than Abraham can fathom, but he is also saying, Abraham, I need you to do something. I need you to rise. I need you to leave. You must ascend to the occasion because I have transcended all the shame and all the observable phenomena that you have known to this point in your life. Trust in God means arising and taking action. And in Romans 4, Paul spins off on Abram's story. He talks about justification as God interacting and interceding in our life, changing who we are. Uh, and his emphasis is always on grace, and the point is always that God steps into our lives and transforms us. And that God is the justifier. God is the one who comes to us and scoops us up when we are broken and fallen and in need. And the ramifications of grace, the results of grace, and the inevitable questions that call us out of our fallen state lead us to arise. They lead us to a new self in which we choose to become. Psalm 121 as I read it, is a reflection on the act of this rising belief, on this rising faith. It calls us to look to the hills, to look to the mountains, where we might see where we shall go, and who the Lord is and what he does. And the vastness of what God says in this passage is amazing. He says, you know, my help comes from the Lord who made all things. Uh, he will not let you slip. He will never leave your side. He will never stop watching over you. Again, God's promises are huge. They are more than we can imagine. God, the way that God presents himself and is, and the way that the Bible teaches who God is, 
is too good to be true for us. It is far greater than we could ever imagine or desire or hope for. And when God makes these promises, He shows us where He will take us. He shows us what is to come. He, you know, it says in Genesis four uh, or Genesis twelve that He said, "I will show you the land that I will take you to." Here in Psalm one twenty one, it says, "I lift my eyes up to the mountains." God directs our eyes to something to a destination, to an outcome. An anonymous monk once said that repentance has to do with renouncing our narrow human views that are too small for God's mystery. And that God might show us something that goes beyond the observable, beyond the knowable, into something that is greater than we can imagine. Tomorrow is St. Patrick's Day, and... St. Patrick was a visionary. He was someone that God used mightily to spread the kingdom and spread the gospel. Uh, Once a nobleman's son in England, he was a rake and a scoundrel, and he was abducted by Irish marauders and put into slavery uh, in Ireland. And for several years, he labored as a shepherd in the field for his master. And part legend, part... uh, Patrick's account uh, has it that he became a penitent believer in the, she- in the, the fields and in the slavery. And one day God came to him and directed him where to go. God said, there is a ship in a harbor. Harbor was actually 200 miles away. Uh, and he said, if you go there, it will deliver you from your slavery. And so Patrick got up and walked 200 miles to the ship just as God had spoken to him. But when he got to the ship, the crew turned him away. And when the crew turned him away, Patrick walked off. And as he walked off, he simply prayed. He prayed that the Lord would show him where to go next. And as he walked away, the crew summoned him back and said, all right, we'll take you. It kind of descends into legend after that, that they get stranded and God gives them food in the wilderness. It kind of takes on this strange legend tone. But the point of all of that is that God provided, God interceded, and God gave Patrick a vision of where he was going. And the psalmist points out, once we look to God, once we look to where our help comes from, and recognize him with the vision of repentance, the vision of faith, his character is revealed and made known, and we understand who he is, and that he is directing us to trust in him. There may be setbacks, there may be tests along the way, but God is still who he is. He is still ever before us, just like the mountains, if we direct our eyes to them. The first act of grace sets us free, and the simultaneous act of faith is to call us to a vision of repentance, to an obedient response to arise and go where God leads. We are all called on the way of the journey to ourselves to seek out Jesus, to seek out the new birth that he has for us, the new self, this image of a bicycle being restored into something new. And that brings us to 
John 3, which is kind of a bewildering passage if you read it. Uh, it's very confusing, actually. I would say if you discount Revelation, it's probably one of the most confusing passages in all the New Testament to me. Uh, every time I read it, I feel more confused and like it makes less sense. But we're going to jump into it. Uh, in seminary, they also tell you to interrogate the text. So I'm going to approach it with kind of a Q&A format. Um, first question, is Nicodemus a good guy or a bad guy? And it's a very black and white question, but uh, you know, when they say he's a Pharisee and a ruling council member, that implies that he is a religious elite, which means he is conservative, he is pro-Rome, he impli uh, it implies that he has attained prominence through corruption. Uh, that is not a good thing in the Gospel of John to be called a Pharisee and a ruler. But what he says is very confusing because he seems to be saying nice things to Jesus. And usually the Pharisees did not say nice things to Jesus. So we move on. Why is it nighttime? Most of Jesus' interactions come during the day until you get to his passion. Uh, most of the time he talks to people, either in groups or even in solitary settings, it's daytime. So why is it night? It could be because nighttime was what the rabbis prescribed when you should study. After nightfall, if you were to be on the path towards understanding and study of God, you were supposed to be in the bookhouse and in the library. Um, or it could be a very foreboding and dark image that something sinister is going on. Perhaps Nicodemus doesn't want people to see him talking to Jesus. Perhaps he doesn't want people to know that he is a Pharisee talking to him. Does that mean he's a good guy? Or bad? Again, you know, I just could waffle back and forth all day on it. The la third question, also Nicodemus, who is we? Who are you talking about, Nicodemus? Are you talking about the Pharisees? Are you talking about a small group of believers within the Pharisees, like Joseph of Arimathea? Because what he's saying, again, seems nice. Is he trying to draw Jesus out? Is he making pretenses? Is he being dishonest? Is he actually trying to engage Jesus? Perhaps the most confusing thing is just that Nicodemus says one thing and then Jesus just goes off on something else. Uh, and at first, and for a long time, I didn't understand what it had to do with anything. Um, so are Jesus' words, is Jesus just being a guru? Is he just slamming Nicodemus and saying, you don't know nothing, how about this? <laughs> like, <laughs> or, as God prescribed promises, to Abram is Jesus prescribing something to Nicodemus that actually addresses his deepest fears and his deepest needs. And John 8, Jesus is addressing a group of Pharisees in the midst of a talk, and uh, they actually say to him, you know, we don't you know, care about what you're saying, Jesus. We are born of Abraham. Uh, being born of Abraham like Abraham reckoned before he knew that he was born of Abraham, uh, being born of Abraham was like being born of God for the Jews. If you were born of Abraham, it was like saying you were born into God's kingdom. And so Jesus is looking at Nicodemus, a Pharisee, good guy or bad guy, 
Jesus looks at him and he knows what he's thinking. He's thinking that he's already in the kingdom of God. And that's why he's, with pretense or not, coming to Jesus' end and trying to, maybe he's trying to get Jesus in the fold. Like, Jesus, you're this new teacher. You're doing these miracles. You're going to be one of us, right? Maybe, you know, I think he's honest in that inquiry. But Jesus says, being one of us doesn't mean what you think it means. Being born of God is radically different custom that Jesus is prescribing, and it addresses the ethical or the ethnic ideas that the Jews carried in this time. They thought that being born a Jew meant being born to God's true kingdom. And Jesus says, no, being born of God means being born to God's kingdom. How does Jesus, last question, how does Jesus want Nicodemus to respond to all this? Because Jesus, or Nicodemus just really kind of gives up. He's like, what's that you say? (laughs) Um, But I think that Jesus' expression of grace and faith and this new birth that he is talking about, he's calling Nicodemus and he's calling us to arise and step into this newness. Uh, and, you know, in the restoration process, it's not always visible. It's not always stand and be counted. It's not always switch teams and switch uniforms. What they're doing today is not necessarily visible. Um, when we leave today, the, book, the bike is pretty much going to look exactly like it was when you walked in here this morning. The initial response to faith, the initial response to grace of faith is rising up with will, willingness to go wherever God sends you, to do whatever God wants you to do. And the new birth is a process that lasts us our entire life. Um, The new creation is growing, it is becoming. Sometimes the most subtle force on earth is the love of God. As I was reading commentaries on this passage to try to understand it more, there were some very key thoughts that I pulled out, and I wanted to just share those with you. John Allen wrote that Jesus is pushing his followers to understand that new life emerges constantly from the old that God sends new life from above and that new perspectives interrupt our old habits. I think that our, I mean, our community and our rituals, that's the design. We are designed to encourage new things, new birth, new challenges, old habits dying, new habits being formed. In the kingdom of God, we are all old dogs needing to be taught new tricks. And Jesus goes on and, you know, he talks about wind and uh, other things that are just kind of way out there. I think that that's the whole point, is that there is a mystery to it. There is an unfathomableness to it. That being in the kingdom of God is not like being in a political kingdom. Being a spiritual person is not like being a physical person. It's a different kind of esoteric thing that, you know, Don Miller said, you know, you have to be a mystic 
to be a Christian, to actually understand what Jesus says in the New Testament. And as we come to the most famous verse, John 3, 16, um, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. It's, it's actually kind of stunning to me that this extremely publicized verse comes out of this bizarre interaction that Jesus is having, that it's you know, the most strange and different conversation Jesus ever has. And here it is, just the summary of the Bible that you know, we're going to put on billboards and put up on things. But John 3.16 really is potent because it expresses the triune God giving us liberation, and it also incorporates our mutual responsibility, our need to rise to the occasion of faith, that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall, not have, shall have eternal spiritual life. The Trinity is at work in our lives to bring us into a life worth living. That God is trustworthy and he provides, that his promises are fulfilled. And that all are included, even God's enemies. Um, God did not come to condemn, but to save. And as Martin Niemöller once put it, it took me a long time to realize that only, not only did God not hate my enemies, he didn't even hate his own enemies. Another quote, Nicodemus represents people who carefully and cautiously must examine the new things that God may be doing and subject these to painstaking, painstaking scrutiny in light of past traditions and experiences before jumping in and embracing them. A response is always God's intention of getting involved in the first place. And he is inviting us to liberation, to grace, and to birth anew, to arise. And with that, I want to step into a time of uh, talking back because, as I said, I don't feel adequate to these passages. There's a lot here, and I really look forward to this part, actually, of the talk most of all, of hearing you guys respond and um, kind of stepping into what does all this actually mean? Where do we actually go with all of this? Uh, how is God calling out to us? And so just some questions to bounce off of you. How do we find ourselves in Nicodemus? What cultural shames and beliefs in Christ overcome, is Christ overcoming in our midst? What promises of God fly in the face of the world and how can we embrace them? How can we overcome, oh, overcome difficulty in God's sustained transformation when it seems imperceptible? <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> All right. Well, two final thoughts to, uh, to close this out. We can go back to the, yeah. Um, there is no coming to consciousness without pain. People will do anything, no matter how absurd, in order to avoid facing their own soul. One does not become enlightened by imagining figures of light, but by making the darkness conscious. And St. Patrick said the struggle, that struggle of darkness upon which we are engaged, 
is full of hardships, full of dangers, for it is the struggle of man against himself.